Our Bible reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and from verses 1 through to 13. You'll find that uh, in your Bibles in the pew in front of you, in the seat in front of you, uh, on page 1145. So that's 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus On the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, In that case, you would have to leave the world, or leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Happy reading, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Uh, It's worth saying that when we plan the church preaching series, we don't sit around going, oh man, when can we preach that passage? I really want to talk about kicking people out of church. Uh, Why are we preaching this today? It's worth asking that question. Uh, One of the reasons is because as a principle, we do what's called expository preaching. We take a book of the Bible and we just work through it. And what that forces you to do is actually look at all of Scripture. And if you ask me, is this a passage that I would naturally choose and think, wow, I can't wait to preach on it, the answer would be no. But if you ask God, he says, actually, I've put it there because I want you to understand why this is here and what this means for us today. And so as we go through 1 Corinthians, we've picked it particularly because it's a book that really does address a whole range of issues, ones that we might not normally deal with, ones we might shy away from, ones that are controversial, and this, no doubt, is one of them, the whole issue of church discipline. So let's pray. And as we are going through this book, we've come to this chapter, let's pray for God's wisdom and his spirit to help us understand what it's saying to us today here at St. Matthew's. Father, we are glad we're here, and we know this is a confronting word, 
a challenging word, and I pray that you would give us the grace and the wisdom to understand it and to apply it to our own lives and, importantly, to our life as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, um, have you ever faced rejection? I think most of us probably at some point in our life have probably faced rejection, and you could probably uh, recount stories of when you felt rejected by a group of people. Um, I remember quite a significant one happened for me at my last church where I was rejected by them. All the church members uh, in Wollongong, pretty much across all the churches in Wollongong, it's not just typical to Fig Tree Anglican Church, are actually rabbit St. George Illawarra Dragon supporters. Now this is very understandable, it is the Illawarra, many of the players came from the Illawarra, they're local juniors, in fact if you speak to Naomi she grew up with uh, a bunch of the players. What surprised me, though, was the animosity towards me when I came out as a supporter of the Manly Sea Eagles. It was kind of like a coming out of the closet. And one of my most vivid memories was in 2007, and I was in a very buoyant move. We'd just defeated the Cowboys in the uh, elimination semi-final. It was Sunday night, I was preaching, and the grand final was the next week. And I had the temerity to stand up, and in front of 300 Rabbits and George followers, who also were my friends and my congregation... And I said, look, I think Manly's going to win next week. And to a person, 300 people rose up and booed at me. That's why I love being up here. I can wear my jersey with pride. Now, there's a great sense of rejection there that day. Now, um, I'll tell you how far it went and how deep it went. When I left a year later, my men's group bought me a Manly Seagulls jersey to wear. That's the one you can see in the screen there. And I was very chuffed about it. And then I found out that they actually, the group of leaders who were organising the present, drew straws to see who would have to actually go and be seen to be buying a Manly Seagulls jersey. And Paul Whitelaw drew the short straw and with great embarrassment went down to the supporters club in Manly, and uh, sorry, in Wollongong and bought it. Now, that's a light-hearted story of rejection. They're still friends of mine. I got my justice back. Uh, My friends come up and stay here for a week, uh, for a couple of nights during the uh, Jazz Festival, which also happens to be grand final week. And I managed to get a few of them to put Manly Supporter balloons up when we celebrated the grand final here a couple of years ago. And Rob did it with gritted teeth. It's like, you love me, Rob. Up they go. Anyway, today we're talking about a story. And it's a true story, a real story where the Apostle Paul is saying to the church, you actually need to reject someone. You need to cast them out. You need to exclude them as a brother. You need to abandon him to the devil. And it's a very striking story. And as you read through this chapter, um, you don't have to be Einstein, you don't have to be a professor of English literature to work out what Paul is saying. I think just one reading through of the text in the Bible reading this morning by Rod, and you've kind of got the picture. Let me just uh, reiterate those opening words. It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? I want to ask uh, a couple of just simple questions to help us unpack this and understand what it means for us today. And it's really under the general rubric of church discipline. What was actually happening in Corinth? And it's worth reflecting on what's happening because until you understand what's happening, you won't understand why he's 
calling the church to expel what he calls the wicked brother. And there's three things there. First thing to note is that there was serious, unrepentant sin. And I say serious because it was the sin of incest. A man has his father's wife, is what verse 1 says. And Paul is quoting here from Leviticus 18, verse 8. And I make mention of that because what's likely is that he is sleeping with his stepmother, not his biological mother. And I think it's worth um, pointing that out. It's not actually his biological mother, but it's his stepmother. Uh, Because when you go back to Leviticus, there's actually two sins that are pointed out. One when you're sleeping with your biological mother, one with your stepmother. And this is the quote here, you're sleeping with your father's wife. In other words, not your mother. And when you understand that it's quite possible that the woman involved, the stepmother, could have been quite a few years younger and closer in age to the son, then you think, yes, I can kind of see how it might have happened, though it is completely wrong. You see, it's a serious sin that's being talked about. And it was unrepentant. Uh, There's no sense of shame. The congregation has not dealt with it. And so it had become a publicly known sin. As Paul says, even the pagans, those who don't go to church, who you know, have no morals, even they would be outraged to know that what's happening. It was publicly known. And I say that because Paul has had it reported to him. I, the church knew about it, everyone knew about it. There was not some private witch hunt that Paul's seeking to whip up, but rather he's responding to what everyone else knows is happening in the congregation. Which leads me to the third thing, the church had actually done nothing about it. They had implicitly accepted that the sin that was happening was not that significant, not something that needed to be dealt with. And what was worse, uh, as Paul says there, and you are proud. Now, I don't think they were so much proud in this person and what he was doing. I don't think that's what's being spoken of. They were just proud of themselves. And they saw themselves, no doubt about it as you go through the letter, as being people of wisdom and of spirituality and they're having spiritual experiences. And they were puffed up in their pride. They really thought they were someone. And Paul thinks, you think you're spiritual and you're doing nothing about this. It's completely crazy. The person may have been someone who was well-known in the city. Now, I'm speculating at this point. But there's a real sense that the sin that is taking place is someone who's known in the congregation and the leaders, for whatever reason, were they afraid? Did the person have a big checkbook? Did the person have position and power in the city of Corinth? They were basically turning a blind eye to it and were more enamored with the other parts of their church that they thought was so good. And so that's what was happening. And Paul writes to address the church, not the man. And it's worth saying, this message is for churches to understand. It's for us to understand. It's for leadership teams to understand. And in brief, what Paul says is, in about five different ways, you need to cast the wicked brother out. And there's no doubt about that because as you read through the passage, there's five sections to it. And each section reflects on this basic principle, you need to remove the immoral believer. That's the opening clause in verses 1 to 2. It's a rebuke and it's a command, get rid of him. 
uh, verses 3 to 5, tell you how to do that and explains that you're doing it for the sake of the man who has fallen. Verses 6 to 8 is giving you a second reason why they need to do it because you need to remove it for your own sake as a church. Fourthly, he's correcting a misunderstanding that uh, some might have thought, so you're telling me you've got to kind of jump on every person who lives a wildly immoral life? No, he said this is only discipline that applies for believers within the church who are professing Christ. And then finally, he comes back to where he started, verses 12 and 13. It's the closing command. It just reinforces what he's been saying. Actually, and quoting Deuteronomy, you need to expel the wicked man. Remove him. So if you're new to us today, isn't it great to have you in church? Welcome to St. Matthew's. We love having you here. Let's talk about expelling people. And I know there's this kind of sense of incongruity about a message. Because is there not no doubt, and there must be no doubt, we are a church that welcomes people to come in. And if I can just speak to people who are new here this morning, we welcome everyone who comes in. Uh, We are not a perfect group. In fact, all of us here who are members of St. Matthew's would say, actually, we're actually just a bunch of sinners who have found hope and grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us struggle. And if you've come in here this morning, we would welcome you in to discover the hope and the forgiveness and the new life that is available to sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we welcome you here today, no matter how broken or bruised or struggling you are with sin, we're really glad you're here. And so how does that message, which I absolutely believe, reconcile with what's here in the passage? Because you see, as you go through, you have to ask the question, what is a church to do? And the simple answer is this, we need to take action. Are you so proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? We need to take action. And you see, what is clear is Paul says that the, to the church that when there's significant unrepentant sin taking place, the church must act in judgment. And so this is not a word to someone who has come in here new and who is struggling, as all of us do. It's not a word for the general congregation who are struggling with sin, as all of us do, and seek to cling to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and turn from our sins and live for the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, love covers over a multitude of sins. And that must be the predominant atmosphere here at St. Matthew's. Love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, um, we don't walk around picking out people's sins. The first thing we need to do is actually love them and care for them. And I would say build an atmosphere where there is grace and where we can speak the truth in love to each other and where we can help each other grow and where in small groups we can grapple with the issues that we struggle with and speak into each other's lives words of truth to help us go forward in becoming people who reflect the glory of who God is and the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures would say, love must be 
in everything we do. And we must be speaking the truth to each other so that we're growing as a congregation. And you think about the Lord Jesus. He welcomed sinners into his fellowship. He hung out with them almost to, well, it was to his detriment. And he was widely criticized for the way he welcomed the sinners of the day. But I want you to think about, is there a time in the life of a church when you have to ask a person to leave? Have a look at the screen. What do these four people have in common? Let me explain who they are if you're not familiar with them. The first person is Wendell Saylor. He was a dual international in rugby union and rugby league. The second person is Eddie O'Bede, a fairly notorious member of the Labor Party for 31 years. The third member, person up there is Gary Edwards, the former member for Swansea for the Liberal Party. And the last person is Rolf Harris, a very well-known entertainer from Bassendine, Western Australia. And do you know what they all have in common? They were all asked to leave their respective organisations. They were all kicked out. Wendell Saylor in 2006 tested positive to cocaine. And the ARU, the Australian Rugby Union, kicked him out of all rugby and sport for two years. He was evicted. Eddie O'Bead joined the Labor Party in 1972. And the Labor Party in 2013 terminated his membership for bringing the party into disrepute. Gary Edwards, to be fair, if I can say at a political level, was the sitting member for Swansea for the Liberal Party up until recently. The Independent Commission Against Corruption heard that in 2010, the then Newcastle Mayor and property developer Jeff McCloy gave Mr Edwards an envelope containing hundreds of dollars. And I quote, Mr Edwards said, I took the envelope but I didn't open it. Now, he was evicted from the Liberal Party this year. Rolf Harris came from the town of Bassendine and, as you know, is now in jail serving time for child sex offences. The local council in 2014 voted to remove all of Harris's artwork from the town's administration building and place them in indefinite storage. The council voted unanimously to remove Harris's freemanship in the town, effective immediately. It also removed a bicentennial plaque dedicated to Harris. He has effectively been evicted from his hometown. Now, why do I mention these people and these evictions? It's simply to demonstrate that this is not an antiquated practice, but it's actually something that even our current culture recognises, that there comes a time in the life of an organisation when you have to say, actually, this person, in whatever way, does not represent who we are. And they have to leave. And I don't think anyone in the public would question the actions of the different groups to act in the way they did. In fact, I think the Labor Party regrets they didn't do it a decade earlier. You see, when you've got significant, repeated, known, unrepentant sin. Something more than a private word to exhort the person to stop must be carried out. Now, when we are caught up in sin, that's why we, in love, speak the truth to each other, to help each other grow. 
But you see, there does come a point in the life of the church when a person, if they won't stop, and it is repeated and it's flagrant, there comes a point when you actually have to say, you actually need to leave. And so what is the church to do? We need to take action when there's significant, repeated, unrepented sin. When you assemble in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, but he may be saved, his spirit, on the day of the Lord. And you see, what does it look like? It means that you, as a leadership team, actually have to say this person needs to leave the church because they have failed to hear the warnings to change their life. That's what it's saying, and that's what we actually need to do. He says in verse 11, you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolatrous, slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. In other words, the case in particular that he's dealt with is sexual immorality, but he's saying actually it's bigger than just sexual immorality. You could have a swindler in your church who everyone knows is a swindler and when confronted won't change his ways. Everyone in the public knows it. And he professes to be a Christian, how wonderful it is to follow Jesus, but yet in the public world he's just swindling people left, right and wherever. With such a person don't even eat. And the reference to food I think is a reference to fellowship because food and eating and fellowship go hand in hand. And I take it you ask a person to leave the fellowship, the gatherings, the meetings, and actually you're not a part of the body anymore. Which leads me to my next question. uh, Why take, take such drastic action? And it's worth understanding this question because Paul gives us two reasons why. Uh, The first is to actually save the person. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You see, people may think that isn't it bad for them to be cut off from Christian fellowship? Well, it is. And you see, we actually need each other in the struggle against sin. And that's why small groups are so helpful because there's a sense of which we can be accountable to each other in our walk together and we actually need to be speaking into each other's lives so that we can hear about our blind spots and grow to reflect more who Jesus is built on the assurance and the foundation of the gospel of being forgiven and being new people. But when people won't listen and they keep continuing to sin, how are they to be warned because you see they actually are placing themselves in danger of eternal judgment there is no assurance for a person who claims to be a christian yet flagrantly unrepentantly walks in sin there is no assurance for them there is rather the likelihood of eternal judgment now i'm not god and judge at that level What Paul is saying is when you experience someone who is professing Christian faith but flagrantly and unrepentantly sinning, you need to bring judgment to bear now by casting them out 
in the hope that they will actually experience that as God's judgment on what they're doing so that they might be saved. And you see, that's why he says, hand the man over to Satan. It's a sense of which they're being judged so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You just take one of the cases that we spoke about, Wendell Saylor. It was a massive wake-up to Wendell and the danger of drugs. And it forced him to evaluate his life. I don't think that's true of Eddie Obede. And you see, what you're doing is seeking to actually bring to bear on the person's conscience the weight of the judgment that will fall if they don't turn around and listen to God's word. So that's the first reason. The second is to actually protect God's church. There's an interesting discussion here about bread and yeast. You might wonder what it's to do with. Well, it's a reflection on Old Testament practice. And it's picking up about the Passover. And he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole dough? In other words, you think you guys are fine and you're spiritual. But this person who is flagrantly sinning, is like a little yeast. In other words, they're actually affecting everyone else. You're actually not that spiritual anymore. Get rid of the old yeast that there may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. And what he's saying is, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Who are you? You are to be a holy group of people. That's who you are in Christ. Christ has been sacrificed for you. Your sin has been dealt with, so you need to reflect that in your life together. And you see, unrepentant sin contaminates the church, is what Paul is saying. Now, if I can speak candidly about St. Matthew's. Uh, When I came here, there was a significant issue with the evening congregation with alcohol. It had been left unchecked. And it was affecting people to the point that people were joining the congregation and then developing an alcohol problem. Only once in my 20 years as a minister have I had to stand up and publicly rebuke a congregation. And I did it at the night service in my first year here in 2009. As it became very evident that it was a major problem. And you see, what had happened was it had not been dealt with and confronted. And it started to affect everyone in the way they treated and viewed alcohol. Uh, What Paul is saying is very real here. Sin left unchecked works through the whole body. But didn't Jesus say, don't judge others? It's one of the thoughts that people may have in reflecting on this. I mean... How do those two ideas go together? Jesus said these words, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now it says two things um, you need to enter into dealing with this. And it's a leadership question with great fear and trepidation and great humility. Because the way you judge, you too will be judged. But the particular 
issue that Paul, uh, Jesus is talking about is personal criticisms of others and being self-righteous yourself, thinking that you are better than others when actually you're not. And you point out their small things when, in fact, your whole life has got much bigger things that need to be dealt with. It's not a reflection and it's not a word to us on this issue of significant known unrepentant sin that leadership must deal with. Now, to give you a feel for how significant it needs to be, I've only practiced this on a couple of occasions in my time as a minister, thankfully. But I have had to do it. We had one, a person, single mother. She was part of the worship leadership team. She would be up front helping lead worship. But she moved in uh, with a non-Christian man and just started living with him. Sexual immorality followed. Uh, We counseled her, spoke to her privately. She didn't care. Numerous attempts were made to try and help her change. It was very well known in the congregation. And we got to a point where we actually had to say, you can't come. We needed her to feel the weight of the sin that she was caught up in for her own salvation. And we also needed to act for the purity of the church to say, actually, you can't live with someone and sleep with them. It's actually wrong. We're going to come to that after Easter. I had a second occasion which wasn't to do with sex. It was to do with slander. Where one member unapologetically and unrepentantly, publicly went around maliciously slandering another member of the church over a particular issue. I won't go into the details. But it got to a point where we had to say that they actually had to leave the church. It was very well known what was happening. And we had to take action. It is a very difficult thing. But for the sake of the person, they need to feel the weight of God's judgment on unrepentant sin. For the sake of the purity of God's people, we need to feel the weight of God's judgment on sin so that it doesn't prosper. You see, God calls us to be a holy people and in Christ... Through his shed blood, that is what we are. We are declared innocent. And this is the wonderful news for you if you're new here. You can be forgiven. You can be made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have your sins wiped away. And we as a church want to reflect those two truths, the reality that there is forgiveness and hope for the, uh, for the person who comes, weighed down by their sins. And secondly, that you'll see the reality of that hope And you'll see the reality of that forgiveness in the way we have changed our lives to now reflect who God is. And it's a scandal when someone professes to be a Christian and there is no repentance in their life. And they say, yes, how wonderful is God as they go out and swindle someone else. 
One of the most sad moments for me as a minister was sitting in a physiotherapist's room, getting treated. And I had a knee reconstruction done, and I spent a lot of time in that physio. And I would try and share my faith with all the others who were in the room. And one of these guys who I was getting treatment with, I said, look, I'm the minister at Fig Tree Anglican Church. And he said to me, oh, does such and such go to your church? Now, it wasn't with joy. He despised the man for the way he behaved in the public arena at the steelworks. And it was like, and you want to talk to me about God? It's a complete joke. And you see, that's why we must act. The honour of God's name is at stake when we flagrantly live in a way that denies the reality of the gospel and that there is hope and transformation and forgiveness available and we continue on in our sin. Friends, I pray I never have to exercise this here at St. Matthew's. Having to rebuke a congregation was enough. But friends, if people come here and we welcome everyone, the call is to look to Christ and find hope and find forgiveness and grace at the cross and turn your life to him and live in a way that brings him joy. I pray that we would be filled with people like that Let's pray and let's be quiet because there is no doubt sin is incredibly deceptive in our lives. And rather than looking around the room, let's look in our own hearts, our own struggles, our own denials, our own issues that we think don't matter too much and ask God to convict us of what we need to change. Let us pray. Father, I, I just ask that you would work in our hearts and minds to continue to change us to be like the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for Christ who was the Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for our sin and who cleanses us from all our wrongdoings. Help us to walk in the reality of that truth and to reflect your holiness in all that we do. And Father, when we're struggling with sin, Father, help us to have strength by your spirit and by our brothers and sisters in the Lord to turn to you. Give us humility of heart so that we each day walk confessing our need of you and your forgiveness. And Father, protect us from pride and from hardness of heart so that there is never a time when we fail to heed your word and turn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.